As Frankie and I were driving here this morning, we were listening to Scripture, and it was the reading out of Exodus chapter 33. And I was just struck by what Moses said. Um, And my heart just resonates with what he said for us this morning and every day. Moses said, Lord, I can't go unless your presence goes with me. (laughs) He says that there's one thing that I can't live without, that I can't function without, that I can't minister as your agent without. I need your presence. And then he argued with, he brought this argument to the Lord. He says, Without your presence, what else do we have that makes us distinctive or different from the other nations? And I thought, wow, that is so true. And, and, and that is so right on. Like, what is it that's going to make us distinctive or different from others that we drive a Dodge? Let's, you know, if you attend this church, you got to, everybody's got to drive a Dodge, you know. What, what are we going to make that makes us distinctive, right? That I don't smoke? Oh, whoa, those people up there, they don't smoke. You know? I mean, we, we make things distinctive. No, what's distinctive is that, that there's God's presence with them. And I know that sounds ethereal or how do you define that? How do you explain that? But once you know it, you know it, right? And, one, and, and we were just singing about that. I was thinking as we're singing, it says, Lord, yes, your presence is so beautiful. And my desire for us this morning is that each one of us, young and old, that we're not here to manufacture some religious experience. We're here to sit in God's presence, and God will meet with us. He's going to meet with us this morning. Lord Jesus, I just ask that you will just envelop this space, this room with your presence up here in Willow, Alaska, Lord. That as people walk through these doors, there'd be just the supernatural awareness that you're here meeting us where we are at, life as it is with us, and you're here to minister to us, to bring us peace, to bring us love, to bring us transformation. Lord, we need your presence. We want your presence above everything else. There's nothing else we desire more, Lord, than your presence. More than anything, anything else in this world, we want your presence. Your presence is so indispensable, Father. We live to walk with you. And we want you this morning, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday I was looking out at the white landscape. Everything was just covered in over feet, four feet of snow. I, I couldn't even get out to measure it. It's so deep where we live in Point Mackenzie. And there was more snow, snow pouring down. And I got excited and I said to Frankie, I said, I see springtime coming. And she said, well, you have a good imagination. <laughs> How is it possible... For someone to look out at the bleak midwinter and see signs of spring. Well, if you have an eye for it, you can see things turning around. There are signs of mercy. 
There are the season is changing, daylight's increasing, buds are swelling, red poles are returning, fruit tree uh, uh, rootstock grafts are are in the mail or they're ordered. Uh, garden seeds are are here. My chickens are laying more eggs. The the wood pile is dwindling down. <laughs> Winter's got to be ending soon, right? And Easter is coming. So so I'm I'm a man of hope, <laughs> even though the ed- evidence looks contrary. I'm a man of hope. Springtime is coming, and even though it still looks like winter is outside, there are signs that we are on the prelude of a breakthrough. Well, here's what I want you to know this morning. If you feel like your life is stuck in winter, springtime is coming. If you're in a spiritual battle, a transition is coming. There's a breakthrough coming. If you've bottomed out, there are signs of mercy that God is coming to turn things around for you. If you're stuck in a spiritual slump, get prepared to transition to higher ground. You're standing on the prelude of a breakthrough. So for the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at a prelude to a breakthrough in the Old Testament. The life of Samuel was a prelude to a breakthrough. God used Samuel to turn the spiritual tide around in Israel. I love the way the Old Testament scholar David Payne describes it, uh, describes 1 Samuel in his book. Uh, His book is titled Kingdoms of the Lord, A History of the Hebrew Kingdoms from Saul to the Fall of Jerusalem. I pulled it off my shelf and I saw him describing this time of 1 Samuel as what he called the prelude to the monarchy. And because that's what Samuel actually is, he's a transition man. And as we read 1 Samuel, we need to read it as as it's a prelude to something. It's a prelude to a breakthrough. 1 Samuel covers 95 years from the birth of Samuel to the death of Saul. And during that time, there's signs of mercy that God is intending to turn things around for Israel. And when we read 1 Samuel, we're reading about a time of transition. It's a transition from judges to kings, from theocracy to monarchy, from the theocracy that was under the judges to the monarchy that's under the kings. And the central location of worship is moved from Shiloh to Jerusalem. The ark of God's presence was transitioning from a nomadic life to a permanent location in Jerusalem. And the trans transition started with the birth of Samuel. Samuel's birth is actually a sign that God is intending to turn things around. And Samuel followed Samson as the last judge in Israel, and he transitioned to become the first prophet in Israel. His prophetic ministry led to a revival that took place in Israel, the return of the ark, the defeat of the Philistines, So it's good to remember that times of transition may be actually the prelude to a revival. God activates transitions in order to create the prelude to a breakthrough. Even though transitions are hard and it looks like winter, but there's signs of God's mercy that he intends to turn things around. Even though it may be the bleak midwinter, 
Springtime is coming, and that's what I want to look at this morning from the first chapters of 1 Samuel. I want us to think about transitions as a prelude to a breakthrough. I want us to look at five signs of God's mercy in cycles of failure that we observe in the first three chapters of 1 Samuel. No matter how bleak it looked, there are indicators that God was wanting to turn things around. So if you're in a spiritual battle, I want to encourage you that there's a breakthrough coming for you. And I want you to look at your spiritual battle through the eyes of God's mercy. Because of his mercy, your failure is not your finale. It's a prelude to a breakthrough. God's mercy can break cycles of failure. And that's the message I want to show us from 1 Samuel this morning. In the first three chapters, actually, of 1 Samuel, there are five signs that point to the prelude to a breakthrough. And the first sign is the mercy of God, God's mercy. When you see God beginning to show mercy, you are in the prelude to a breakthrough. The book of Judges precedes 1 Samuel. There's an interesting transition when we move from one to the other. Judges closes with a description of Israel's problem. And 1 Samuel opens with a hint that a breakthrough is coming. So it closes with you know, the, 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 the problem described, and then Samuel opens with a, a message of hope, that there's going to be a new beginning. Judges 21, 25, the last verse of Judges says, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And then here's how 1 Samuel starts out. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. Each year Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. So the book of Judges is structured in a way to show us the pattern. Uh, It describes a cycle of sin that is repeated over and over and over again in Israel. The pattern goes like this, and it's it's specifically or intentionally structured in a literary way to show us this pattern through the the various judges and the events of that transpires in the book of Judges. So God um, sells them into the hand of the enemy. The people cry out in repentance. God rises up a deliverer. God defeats the enemy, and the land has rest. So the book of Judges is provoking the person that's reading it to ask an important question. Is Israel doomed to live in this endless cycle of disobedience and punishment, repentance and then deliverance. Disobedience and punishment and deliverance and repentance. And the the background situation that shapes the setting then, as we move into 1 Samuel, is this unhappy state of affairs. It's a sad story, actually, of failure and decline. Israel is stuck in the rut of a cycle of sin, walking further and further and further away from God. And the question then that is raised in the book of Judges is, who can intervene? 
And that's why the last verse says they had no king. (laughs) Like as if they're looking for someone to help them out, get them out of this rut. Who can intervene to reverse this sad state of affairs? If they had, if only we had a godly king, maybe this cycle of widespread wickedness could be broken. And that's why it says in those days Israel had no king and all the people then did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And so Judges is showing us that Israel was in need, in dire need of God's mercy. Help, you know, God help us, please. And so I want to read you a quote from David Payne in his book, Kingdoms of the Lord, A History of the Hebrew Kingdoms from Saul to the Fall of Jerusalem. I just love what he says here. He says, It is safe to say that Israel did nothing during this period to deserve its election. He means they they were elected by God to be uh, this nation that would bring God's glory, show God's glory to the world. They did nothing during this period to deserve this election, which is a mystery indeed. The forces tending toward weakness and disintegration were very strong, and it's something of a miracle that Israel even survived. Yet Israel did survive, and not long after her lowest ebb became for a short while the strongest nation in the Near East. How is this to be explained? Did a military genius arrive from somewhere and change the whole pattern of history? Did a group of fanatics, patriotic or religious, get control of the nation's affairs? The salvation of Israel was due to the fact that God raised up men and clothed them with his spirit. He and he alone was the real deliverer of Israel. The problem that is described there at the close of the book of Judges then brings us to the beginning of 1 Samuel with the obvious solution, only God's mercy can break this cycle of failure. So this sets up another question. Will God turn things around? Will he show mercy on Israel? Or will he bring judgment? Will he obliterate them and disregard his covenant relationship uh, with them? Or will he keep trying to teach them what a covenant relationship with God looks like? So the book of 1 Samuel then answers that question with four stories in the first three chapters. It opens with four stories that show people in need of mercy. There's a story of a barren womb. Hannah was childless. There's a story of a corrupt clergy. God cleaned up sin in the house of the Lord by getting rid of Hophni and Phinehas. There's a story of a silent heaven. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, it says. And there's the story of departed glory of the unattended ark at the beginning of chapter 4. And these are four pictures that say life has bottomed out and things need to turn around. Our life is sometimes like that, isn't it? Our life is bottomed out. How can things turn around? How do we break this cycle of failure that's repeated over and over in our life? Well, we need to find signs of God's mercy in cycles of failure. We need a breakthrough. When we need a breakthrough, our only hope is the mercy of God. And if there's nothing else you get from this lesson this morning, remember that. Only God's mercy 
can break your cycle of failure. Our human story may may look hopeless, but if we look at what God is like, we always have hope because things can turn around. Things can always turn around. God can always break cycles of failure with because the nature of God is such that he wants to send mercy. He wants to give mercy. God wants to open up new chapters of mercy. He wants to turn the page to write new chapters, new stories. And here's what the mercy of God means for you and it means for me. It means that your battle that you're going through right now is actually a prelude to a breakthrough because of the mercy of God. Because of the rich mercy of God, he can turn every battle, every failure, every cycle of sin into a new beginning, into a revival, into a breakthrough. God wants to turn your test into a turnaround. He wants to turn your trial into a testimony of his mercy. I love what Habakkuk 3.1 says, where Habakkuk is praying for revival. He, he says, oh God, do it again. We've heard of your fame, Lord. We've heard of moments when your presence comes, Lord. And we, we've heard about that. We've heard stories about that. Do it again, Lord. And then he says, in wrath, remember mercy. That's the way it always is. In, when we're deserving wrath, there's only one hope. And that is the mercy of God. And so as we leave the book of Judges and open up the pages of 1 Samuel, we're immediately seeing these signs of God's mercy in cycles of failure. We close the book of Judges realizing that the Israelites have undergone a, have, have, have not undergone a change of heart. They're still the same way they've always been. And then we open up the pages of 1 Samuel with a story that is centered in Shiloh, Israel's central place of worship, where Eli is the priest in charge. And in the house of worship, we see another spiritual sign that breakthrough is coming. And the second sign of God's mercy that I want to look at this morning that is a prelude to a breakthrough is what we want to call holy unrest, holy unrest. When you see God stirring up holy unrest, you are in the prelude to a revival, a a breakthrough. God put a spirit of holy unrest on Hannah to ask God for a son. And I want to read those verses in 1 Samuel. You can turn with me if you'd like. Um, I don't have all of them on the screen because there's so many. But 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 9 to 20. Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Shiloh is Israel's place of worship before it was moved to Jerusalem, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her, seeing her lips moving, but hearing no sound, he thought that she had been drinking. 
Must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. Oh, no, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger. But I'm very discouraged and I've been pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she explained, exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she, had, and she was no longer sad. The entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home to Ramah. When Elkanah slept with Hannah, the Lord remembered her plea, and in due time she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I ask the Lord for him. God put a spirit of holy unrest on Hannah to ask for this son. And I want to remind you that do not make the mistake of thinking that your trial is greater than God. God is always greater than your trial. Amen? History belongs to the intercessors. History belongs to those people who believe that in every crisis, God can prevail. In every crisis, there are signs that God is sending salvation. It's important to recognize where Samuel was born. Samuel was born in a season of intercession. Hannah's barren womb was a preparation that created a longing for something new to be born. It was a sign of, of hope, a sign of God's mercy. Samuel's birth story begins in Shiloh, Israel's central place of worship. His name means ask God or heard by God. And so Hannah took her anguish to God because she believed in the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God, the power of God. And Samuel's birth was a sign that God was turning things around. Hannah's burden of barrenness then, think about this, Hannah's burden of barrenness, though it was bitter, was actually a gift. God stirred up in her a holy desire to be pregnant, to become pregnant with a prophet. The first prophet of Israel, Samuel, this great man of God. And Hannah was relentless in her request to ask God for this miracle. She had a passion to pray for a heaven-sent pregnancy. Maybe Hannah didn't know exactly what power was compelling her into this intense intercession. Maybe she didn't know where she was getting this desire for a son. But God was stirring up her heart to pray for this prophet. And this pregnancy she was praying for was huge. It was big. It was a sign that God was wanting to turn things around in Israel. The Holy Spirit wanted to make her pregnant with a prophet who would turn things around. So God put the spirit of intercession on Hannah. She was given the spirit of intercession in order to usher in a new season of intervention. I was looking Friday um, for a recipe to try and cook for a meal for when Frankie got home from school. And I was looking in our old family 
cookbook where my father wrote out, before he passed away, he wrote out, out all of my mom's recipes and put it in a little notebook and gave it to all of us kids. And it's kind of cool. And at, at the bottom of every page where there's recipes, he would write a quote or a poem or a line or something. I don't know where he got all of them, but my father was very good with the, he worked in the aluminum plant all of his life, but he wasn't a minister, but he was, was great man of God, and he had, he'd always drop a saying, you know, he had these pithy sayings, and here's the saying on the recipe that I was, uh, I, I worked on, I, I worked on, I tried to do this thing, it was like mush, but, but it's still, here, here's what my father wrote in the family recipe book, he said, turn your care into prayer, and God will turn midnight into music. <laughs> that, that's the lesson of Hannah right there, right? Turn your care into prayer, and God will turn midnight into music. I love that. Whenever God shows you something that needs to change, it's a sign that he wants to turn things around and he's asking you to pray about it. And whenever you sense that restlessness, that things aren't right in our world, then it's a call that you need to listen to. It's a call to intercession. It's a call to pray about it. God is stirring up this spirit of prayer or intercession in you. And, and there are two dangers, actually, that we can fall into when God gives us this spirit of holy unrest. There's the danger of developing a critical spirit that we need to guard against because God doesn't show you things that need changing in order to go around complaining about them and blaming others, right? God doesn't give us this spirit of holy unrest to develop a critical spirit. He gives us holy unrest to call us to intercession. It's a sign that he wants to turn things around. So go to him in faith and confidence that he is the one, he is the God of mercy and our only hope is the mercy of God. And so there's the danger of, of this holy unrest becoming a critical spirit, but there, on the other hand, there's another danger of it becoming just indifference. Uh, Hannah didn't allow herself to become just indifferent to this holy unrest. She didn't live in denial about it. She didn't cast it off. She didn't turn a blind eye to it. She didn't accept the wrong to be, oh, well, this is just normal. This is just the way it is. She didn't just capitulate to it. She didn't just settle for the status quo. She leaned into it that God was giving her holy unrest. And she said, that's a sign of God's mercy. When God gives us holy unrest, it's a sign he wants to change something. Amen? Amen. And so when you see God stirring up holy unrest, we're seeing this move of God to bring divine intervention because of his mercy that we're living in the prelude to a breakthrough. The third sign that we are in a prelude to a breakthrough or a prelude to revival is exposure of sin. And there's this other story that shows up at the beginning of 1 Samuel that about Hophni and Phinehas and and they appear in the story as another example of a prelude to a breakthrough, actually, when you think about it. I'm going to read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, and then verses 22 to 26. So, verse 12 of chapter 2. Now, the sons of Eli were, were scoundrels. I just love that. I'm reading out the New Living Translation. They were scoundrels. I don't know how you'd say that in Canadian, scoundrels. Does that sound different? Who had no respect for the Lord 
or for their duties as priests. Whenever anybody offered a sacrifice, Eli's sons would send over a servant with a three-pronged fork. While the meat of the sacrificed animal was still boiling, the servant would stick the fork into the pot and demand that whatever is brought up be given to Eli's sons. All the Israelites who came to worship at Shiloh were treated this way. Sometimes the servant would come even before the animal's fat had been burned on the altar, and he would demand raw meat before it had even been boiled so that it could be used for roasting. And then I'm going to skip over to verse 22. Now Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance, that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. Eli said to them, I've been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things that you are doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop, my sons. The reports I hear among the Lord's people are not good. If someone sins against another person, God can mediate for the guilty party. But if someone get, sins against the Lord, who can intercede? But Eli's sons wouldn't listen to their father, for the Lord was already planning to put them to death. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew taller and grew in favor with the Lord and with the people. One day a man of God came to Eli and gave him this message from the Lord. I revealed myself to your ancestors when they came, when they were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. I chose your ancestor Aaron from among all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear the priestly vest as he served me. And I assigned the sacrificial offerings to you priests. So why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I promise that your branch of the tribe of Levi would always be my priests. But I will honor those who honor me, and I will despise those who think lightly of me. The time is coming when I will put an end to your family so it will no longer serve as my priests. All the members of your family will die before their time. None will reach old age. You will watch with envy as I pour out prosperity on the people of Israel, but no members of your family will ever live out their days. The few not cut off from serving at my altar will survive, but only so their eyes can go blind and their hearts break and their children will die a violent death. And to prove that what I have said will come true, I will cause your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest who will serve me and do what I desire, I will establish his family, and they will be priests to my anointed kings forever. Then all of your surviving family will bow before him, begging for money and food. Please, they will say, give us jobs among the priests so that we will have enough to eat. Well, what a story, eh? The point is that when you see God exposing sin and corruption in the house of worship, you are seeing signs of mercy. If you want to see a breakthrough in your life, you have to acknowledge your sin. 
Because Hophni and Phinehas did not repent, God's judgment fell on them. There are only two ways that I know of to acknowledge sin. There's either repentance, where we choose to acknowledge it, or there's judgment, where God acknowledges it for us. And we get to choose which way. We can choose to acknowledge our sin through repenting of it or not repenting of it and coming under the judgment of God. Revival comes on God's terms, not ours. And God's terms is that sin always has to be confessed. It has to be acknowledged. It has to be brought out of the darkness into the light. It has to be repentant of. That's why the very first word that Jesus gave in the first sermon he ever preached was the word repent. Meant turn around, change your mind, acknowledge, just acknowledge your, your need of me, your need of my mercy. Because God will not allow sin to be hidden, to be swept under the rug. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When God exposes your sin, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Repentance is a good thing. It's a sign of God's mercy. God gives us a way to not come under judgment. He's bringing us into the prelude of a breakthrough. And this is the sign that God is work at work in our world. If you study the histories of revival, revival, one of the signs that God is moving and God is at work is always this consciousness of sin and this acknowledgement, this repentance of sin. It cannot be swept under the rug. So when God's at work bringing exposure to sin, it's a good thing, amen, in my life, in your life. The fourth sign that we see here in 1 Samuel that's a prelude to revival is a hunger to abide in the presence of God, a hunger for holiness. The second chapter of 1 Samuel just has this obvious pattern that stood out to me as I was reading it, as it tells the story of why God is sending judgment to Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. It repeatedly is interjecting something, just interjecting a little line about Samuel. It gives this, I counted seven short little snippets of information about Samuel. In verse 11, it says, Then Elkanah returned home to Ramah without Samuel, and the boy served the Lord by assisting Eli the priest. Verse 18, But Samuel, though he was only a boy, served the Lord. Verse 21, the last part of the verse says, Meanwhile, meanwhile, Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, another meanwhile, meanwhile, like he's telling a story, but then he interjects this little snippet about Samuel. Meanwhile, there's this other guy, <laughs> you know, it may look bleak, the, the, the situation may look dark, there's a lot of sin going, going on, but meanwhile, don't forget, there's something else, there's a sign of mercy, I have a man, I'm preparing. Meanwhile, there's Samuel, the boy Samuel grew taller and grew in favor with the Lord and with the people. And verse 35, then I will raise up a faithful priest who will serve me and do what I desire. And then three verse ones, another meanwhile, meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by a Eli. 
Did you catch the significance, particularly that statement in verse 21, where it says, Meanwhile, Samuel grew up where? In the presence of the Lord. Where did he grow up? What shaped Samuel? The presence of the Lord. We're back there again to the presence of the Lord that's so indispensable. A desire to abide in God's presence is a sign that God is sending mercy. Do you have that tug on your heart to abide in God's presence? Receive the sign is going to turn things around. It's written kind of wicked flip. Think about where I'm growing Going up in the environment, wick off and just out in the environment of thinking Moses. Hell, we think print reserves. Phil wasn't. He died of. But just my. This is chat. Be your. This is a brisk guy. Want deep as in the bar. Have it up there just to show on the screen. There you go. The bar. Is it familiar to you? Huh? There's a, a road in angle. The bar, right? I think it's spelled maybe two R's at the end of it. But I'll tell you what, every time I drive on the bar, there's something that wells up me. I kind of, it's like a little personal spiritual discipline. I ask the Lord to pour out his word. Every time I drive on Debar, it's a reminder of the Hebrew word Debar. Think about this. In those days, the word, the Debar of God was rare. Oh God, in Anchorage, all through the valley, all through Alaska, cover us, increase the exposure of your word, and bring your word to life. Give me an appetite for your word. Let me hear you speak, Lord. I do not want to live a life where the heavens are silent. I want God to speak to me every day. Amen? Lord, increase your debar when I drive on debar in Anchorage. So I just throw that out to you. I encourage you to do that as well. So just drive into Anchorage today. Just drive. No, don't. No, don't. 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 But it's one of my favorite words. The Hebrew word for God's voice, God's word, is debar. So the key to why God chose to end a season of silence and speak to Samuel is given just two verses earlier in chapter 2, verse 35. He said, I will raise up a faithful priest who will serve me and do what I desire. Why would God speak anyway if there's nobody willing to do what he desires, right? Why would God speak if nobody's going to listen to him? So what he's saying is that I'm raising up a man, meaning Samuel, who will hear me speak. I'm going to speak again because he's going to, he's going to be a man that will do what I desire. What an attribute of a person for God to say that about someone. May that be said about you and I, that we do what God wants, that our passion is to know what's on God's heart. Not that we bring our agenda always to God, but we come to God in prayer and say, Lord, what is on your heart? Before you pray, say, Lord, how do you want me to pray? How do you want me to pray about this situation? What are you thinking, Lord? Don't you think God would love it to hear us say, Lord, what is on your mind? Frankie has this tendency to say to me once in a while because I'm quiet. She says, a penny for your thoughts. A penny for your thoughts, right? But that's, that's what God wants us. Lord, a penny for your thoughts. Lord, speak to me. I want to, I want to hear. I want to know your heart because I want to do what you desire 
God reserves his word for people who are willing to do what he desires. He won't speak until someone is willing to listen. And he called Samuel four times until Samuel recognized that it was God that was speaking. And then the chapter closes with a statement that says that Samuel had this deep reverence for the word of God. He refused to mishandle it, and he was faithful to deliver it without fear. You can read the story there. But Samuel's life was changed forever by the word of God. And from now on, wherever he went, he was on an errand for God to deliver the word of God. He was a prophet. And you can't be a prophet unless you are willing to do what is on God's heart, to say what is on God's heart, not your own agenda. Hophni and Phinehas had their own agenda, but Samuel was a man that God could trust because he was going to be conscientious about what was on God's heart. And Samuel was desperate to deliver God's debar. He was desperate to know the heart of God. He cared more for the debar of God than anything else. So God will turn things around when he finds someone who is willing to listen to his heart. Would that be you? Would that be me? God won't speak until he finds children who are willing to listen. God won't turn things around until we're willing to be awakened by the call of God, interrupted by the call of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus said, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And the heavens will be silent until we're willing to listen. Well, that's the prelude to a breakthrough, the beginning of 1 Samuel, five signs that were in the prelude to revival. I was sharing with the the staff at the beginning of the service about uh, that a revival, there's been reports of revival that is breaking out in, in Kentucky at Asbury Seminary, Asbury University. Uh, and it's just wonderful to read the b- reports. Apparently it started Tuesday morning in chapel service there. And there's been a service that's been ongoing 24 hours, day and night since Tuesday. And it just I just want to get on a plane and go down there just to get this sense of God's presence, just to sit in his presence. The reports that I'm reading about it are just so amazing that how God's presence is there and people are coming in and out and being touched by the presence of God. Buses are getting filled from students from other campuses around the United States and coming there. And the, and the, and the chapel is filled. I see picture after picture that they're posting. The, the, chapter is, the chapel is filled. And at the front of the chapel there at Asbury Seminary are the words, holiness unto the Lord. (laughs) It's the third time God sent a revival to that campus back in the 1950s and the 1970s and now again in 2023. My prayer is that it will, God will fan that flame and it will continue on and on and it will spread all across America and up here and touch us in Alaska. Amen. Lord Jesus, we're hungry. We're hungry to see you move in a way that repairs what is broken. Lord, we lean into your mercy today because there's no other solution. There's no other remedy. There's no other uh, way in which we can break that cycle of sin, Lord, without your mercy. 
And we want your presence, Lord. Your presence is our only answer. We, we want your holiness. We want your word. We want your hunger. We, we invite you, Lord, to shape us into the person that desires to do what you want of us, Lord. We even give you permission, Father, to expose our sin. We want to acknowledge everything that is unlike you, that is in our heart. We just give you permission to do that, Lord. And we just ask that you will show us signs of your mercy that you're turning things around, that we're on the prelude of a breakthrough. So, Lord, just give us hope and encouragement today, Father. No matter where we are at personally, whatever rut we're stuck in, whatever wall we're up against, Lord, you can break through because you are a God of mercy. So as Habakkuk prayed, Lord, do it again. In our day, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.